Frustrated, the podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca. And honestly, this week is just full of trauma (laughs) and female gothic and hysteria. So buckle the fuck up. It's going to be good. But then one funny story. (laughs) Yes, there's going to be fun. (laughs) There's going to be fun. What are you infatuated with this week? I'm infatuated with Wendy Darling by AC Wise. And I don't have a copy of the book, so I'm just going to show you a photo of the cover, which is very pretty. It is very pretty. (laughs) So yeah, it is written with a comma between Wendy and Darling because it does have lots of like nice commentary about what it must be like being a woman with that as your surname. Mm. Because obviously depending on the intonation it's either like a term of endearment or like condescending yeah so we love that (laughs) um so yeah this came out in june of this year 2021 and it's a very dark female gothic retelling of peter pan so this book follows wendy as an adult in 1931 whose daughter jane is also stolen away from her bedroom in london by peter oh And Wendy decides to return to Neverland to save Jane from the horrors there, hidden beneath like the very magical surface of everlasting childhood. Mm. And as this plot continues, we also have flashbacks to Wendy's time in Neverland, her experience in an asylum post-Neverland, and her daughter Jane's perspective as she enters Neverland with Peter. That sounds so cool. Yeah, it is. <laughs> also, this is like irrelevant to that point, but just like the first thing that you said, darling is the nicest term of endearment. It is a ni- yeah, it is a nice one. It is, it is the nicest one. It must be quite a strange surname to have, though. Mm-hmm. Carry on. Yeah. What I love about this book is that it doesn't feel like one of those retellings that has been made dark for the sake of it, mm. like as a gimmick, because the thing about Peter Pan is that the dark or gothic elements were already there in the original text or play even in the disney versions they're pretty dark as well Mm. wise has simply given them more room to shine so like among many things this novel discusses trauma the hysterical female like racism sexuality scarf thin (laughs) (laughs) all our favorite things (laughs) so yeah even though this book is about trauma and the dismantling or and dismantling the idea of neverland this perfect utopia for children it still has a very magical quality and a lyrical style of writing that does reflect like a fairy tale Mm. it's probably one of my favorite retellings i've read like it's bold claim yeah like it's it's really good (laughs) so yeah today i don't actually have a huge amount of analysis because i kind of have just summed up why it's good Mm. but I do want to read some quotes obviously and I'm going to read this off my phone because I borrowed my sister's copy and I I don't have it now so sad shout out to Ruth yeah yeah I want to get my own copy because I actually want to read it again I can't believe that I hadn't seen Peter Pan until you made me watch it this year and it's so fucking good I feel like I get so much of pop culture now (laughs) (laughs) yeah So yeah, I'm going to start by just reading you the first couple pages to show you how the book starts out. So this is London, 1931. Okay. There is a boy outside her daughter's window. Wendy feels it, 
like a trickle of starlight whispering in through a gap, a change in the very pressure and composition of the air. She knows, as sure as her own blood and bones, and the knowledge sends her running. Her hairbrush clatters to the floor in her wake, her bare feet fly over carpeted runners and slap wooden floorboards past her husband's room and to her daughter's door. It's not just any boy, it's the boy, Peter. Every inch of her skin wakes and crawls, the fine hairs all along the back of her neck stand on end, the storm secreted between her bones for years finally breaking wide. Peter, here, now, after so long. She wants to shout, but she doesn't know what words, and as Wendy skids to a halt, her teeth are bared. It isn't a grimace or a smile, but a kind of animal breathing, panicked and wild. Jane's door stands open a crack. A sliver of moonlight, unnaturally bright as if carried to London from Neverland, spills across the floor. It touches Wendy's toes as she peers through the gap, unable for a moment to step inside. Even though she's still, her pulse runs rabbit quick. Backlit against that too bright light is a familiar silhouette, a slender boy with his fists planted on his hips, chest puffed out and chin tipped up, his hair wild. There is no mistaking Peter as he hovers just beyond the second floor window. She blinks and the image remains, not vanishing like every other dream stretched between now and then, between the girl she was and the woman she's become. Of course, Wendy thinks, because this may not be the house she grew up in, but it's still her home. Of course he would find her, and of course he would find her now. Bitterness chases the thought, here and now, after so long. At the same time, she thinks, no, no, please no, but too long fingers already tap the glass. Without waiting for her say-so, the window swings wide. Peter enters, and Wendy's heart swoops first, then falls and falls and falls. Once invited, always welcome. That's his way. Peter doesn't notice Wendy as she pushes the hall door open all the way. He flies a circle around the ceiling and she wills her daughter to stay asleep, wills her tongue to uncurl from the roof of her mouth. Her legs tremble, holding her on the threshold, wanting to fold and drop her to the floor. It's such an easy thing for him to enter, and yet her own body betrays her, refusing to take one step into her daughter's room, in her own house. It's unfair. Everything about Peter always was, and it hasn't changed. After years of her wanting and waiting, lying and hoping, he's finally here. And he isn't here for her. Oh! <laughs> it's so good! <laughs> that first line about the starlight was so, like, magical. I enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, as you can see, Wise is written in some of those like familiar Peter Pan moments. So, like his stance with his yeah, hands on his hips, and like <laughs> him swooping around like the bedroom ceiling, like that's all things that we've seen before. But as you can see, there is that sinister edge already because Wendy's daughter Jane is stolen away by Peter against her will, which does really go against that like magical escapist tale that you mm. hear as kids. So there's just trauma from the get-go, um, and that's mostly what I wanted to concentrate on today. So. That, like, hairbrush falling as well, that's such a good, like, gothic, like, hysterical female. Yeah, no, definitely. You can, like, see that in a shot. Yep. Oh. 
I thought I'd also read the short passage from St Bernadette's, which is the asylum that Michael and John take Wendy to after they return from Neverland. So Michael and John are too young to remember Neverland, or at least they interpret those memories as like playtime or Mm. like dreams. But Wendy, who's a little older, still retains all of those memories. And obviously as she becomes a young woman and still talks about Neverland, and insists that it's real, she's branded as hysterical. Mm. So yeah, this is a passage from the asylum where she's reflecting on Neverland and talking about some of those fantastical elements that we can recognise from the original story. Those are the other skills St Bernadette's gave her. Stealth, silence, the ability to slip beneath notice. All she had to do was pretend to take her medicine, be good, be calm, remember, lie pretend to forget. But of course, she couldn't forget. Peter had lodged beneath her skin like a splinter. Even at her lowest points, when she was tempted to give in and let go the way John and Michael did, she couldn't dig him out. Peter was and is a part of her. Neverland is a part of her. The angled planes of Peter's face, the fire of his hair, the gleam of his eyes, they are as familiar to her as her own features, as Ned's, as Jane's. She will use that to her advantage too. Even now Wendy can call to mind perfectly the innocence in Peter's eyes the first night she met him. The way he held his shadow draped over his arms like the skin of some animal, hope lighting the planes of his face, asking her to make him whole. She had taken the proffered shadow, silky and cool in her hands like the finest of fabrics, as if it was the most natural thing in the world. Of course a boy might become separated from his shadow, and of course a girl might sew it back on again. At the time, she hadn't thought it at all strange. Not even when, at the first touch of her needle, he'd shrieked as though she'd struck him with a hot poker. Afterward, he'd gone around crowing and strutting as if he was the one who'd done something clever. As though Wendy had had no part in it at all, and she'd accepted that too. By the time they'd arrived in Neverland, the shadow she'd stitched on to him had frayed and unravelled, weathering like a rose cut from its vine. They'd landed on the beach in the harsh noonday sun, and Peter had stood with his hands on his hips, the broken point at the centre of a sundial. His lost boys had gathered in a circle around him to greet the darling children, each trailing a shadow stark behind them on the white sand. Peter alone had cast none. She should have known then, But all she'd seen was the promise of adventure, a boy who would teach her to fly. Oh, we love a bit of shadow doubling. (laughs) Can you say gaslight? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I like that Wise has gone down the route of Neverland not being perfect and Wendy just being chucked in an asylum because she's speaking nonsense when they get back. Like, that's not how it's been done. That is part of the reason, obviously, but the other is that she genuinely was traumatised there and as the book unravels, you learn why. So yeah, I love that this passage has his shadow like freeing and him taking credit for ideas, for her ideas, and obviously that idea of Peter or like her trauma being lodged in her like a splinter Mm. is so good because I think that's quite accurate. Like it's something you can't shake, especially Mm -hmm. if the trauma is something you experience like, as you're developing, which obviously is the case with Wendy. And yeah, I have another, like, really short passage about Neverland already being a sinister place. And it is... 
As a child, she delighted in the way Neverland constantly changed around her. She would follow Peter up the beach only to end up in the skirts of a snow-covered mountain. Or they would trace the path of a secret river through pine trees to find the smoking peak of a volcano. Now, the fractured puzzle pieces of the island infuriate her. <laughs> I just like that that shows the difference between like your perception when you like are growing up and when you're a child as well. Yeah. That infuriate, like, obviously, I do wonder if there is a difference between experiencing the story of Peter Pan when you're a child and experiencing it only when you're an adult, because as someone who experienced it first as an adult, I did find it infuriating. Mm. Like, Neverland. I was like, this is really stressful. (laughs) This is not that magical. This is really stressful. Yeah, and I think that is the point, right? Is Mm. that as a kid, it's, like, amazing. It's like, oh, you never grew up, and, Mm. like, whatever you want is there. Yeah. Like, but then obviously as an adult, it's like, hmm, does that work? <laughs> yeah, and it's all really unpredictable and everything's really, like, changeable and weird. And I'm just like, ah! Yeah. Yeah, I have, a, like, another really short quote, but first I'm going to do a longer one. Okay. So this is another one about Neverland. And, yeah, it's a bit longer, but the reason I'm reading it out is because when I read this, my thoughts were like, I literally never thought of that before. <laughs> That's so good. (laughs) This is Wendy again as an adult in Neverland and she's just stumbled upon the wreck of Captain Hook's pirate ship. Okay. She tries to imagine a storm terrible enough to cause this kind of destruction. Had Peter finally tired of endless battles against his old foe and dreamed up a wave big enough to pick up Hook's entire ship and smash it against the shore? Wendy glances at the items drawn around the room Empty bottles, some broken, some whole. A glass bauble, cracked and smoky. A few coins. They're worn, but she can still see the images, stamped on one side with a leering skull, the other with some sort of bird. There's no mark identifying them as belonging to any country, but then there wouldn't be, would there? They're only Peter's idea of a pirate's treasure. Wendy gets down on her hands and knees and peers under the bed. Something glints in a dark space and Wendy's breath catches. It might be more mirror glass and she's afraid of what she might find looking back at her, but she makes herself lie flat, stretching to pull it free. Captain Hook's sword. Wendy rocks back onto her heels, staring at the blade for a moment. It's just as she remembers it, curved, the hilt wrapped in red leather. She stands, slipping her hands beneath the guard of tarnished filigreed gold and tests the grip. When she swings it experimentally, the blade sings a high, whistling note in the air. Wendy rests the pad of her thumb gently against the edge without pressing down. It's still sharp. When she extends her arm, the sword balances naturally. It's like the treasure, not a sword a real pirate would use. It doesn't matter that she has no experience with weaponry. Any sword in Neverland would be able to be wielded by an untrained child as easily as by a seasoned warrior. Like the ship itself, like the pirates, the sword she holds is a plaything, a boy's fantasy of what a sword should be. A toy, but one sharp enough for killing, because that's the kind of boy Peter is. There's no scabbard or belt that she can find, so Wendy tightens her shawl around her waist and tucks the sword into it. A moment of vanity seizes her, and she glances regretfully at the broken mirror. It's a silly thing, but she wishes she could see herself. 
Does she look as fierce and formidable as the captain himself? She pictures Hook's sneer, his red velvet coat, like blood, like poppies, flaring as he paced and turned, all wide lapels and gleaming buttons. Even in her terror, she'd wanted to rub that velvet between her thumb and her forefinger to see what it felt like. The air around her shivers, the timbers beneath her feet shaking with absent footsteps. The longer she stands in his cabin, the more it seems like she can conjure Hook's ghost. She sees his regal figure striding the deck, shaking his fist and daring Peter to come claim his prize, Wendy and her brothers. She can even smell the oil worked into the long, heavy curls hanging down Hook's back, blacker than a raven's wing. In the stories Wendy had told Jane of the tailor and the little white bird, she turned Hook from a pirate into a prince, a wicked and cursed one. Petals scattered from the hem of his coat every time he turned, and poisoned blossoms sprang up beneath the heels of his polished boots. He'd used their petals to lure the little white bird into a deadly sleep, until the clever tailor had woven a net out of every colour of thread to trap the prince and save the bird. Wendy shakes her head. Her stories seem foolish now, and her actual time with the pirates almost seems like one of them. Were they ever truly in danger? At the time, the threat seemed real. She remembers the sour stink of fear, the way Michael had trembled, pressed against her side as Hook tied them to the mast. John, with his chin raised but his eyes owl-wide behind the gleam of his glasses. For all his bluster, though, Hook had never really been cruel to her or her brothers. He'd lashed them to the mast, but the bonds hadn't been tight, and hadn't he made sure they'd had tea to drink and biscuit from the ship's stores? She hated him, but only because she was meant to. He was Peter's enemy, therefore he was her enemy too. She hadn't seen it clearly then, but now Wendy can picture the slant of Hook's shoulders, the lacklustre movement of his hand and his hook as he's secured their bindings. They'd been merely bait, but even Hook must have known that when he came for them, Peter would inevitably escape. He'd captured Wendy and her brothers knowing he had nothing to gain, only frightening them fulfilling the one role Peter designed for him to play. She wonders, is it that Hook couldn't hurt them, or he chose not to? How easy would it have been for him to turn his sneering posturing into true violence, taking his impotence against Peter out in them instead? They had been in Neverland, but not of it, not yet. Did its rules still apply, or could he truly have fed them to the monster beneath the waves, or simply snapped their necks? Wendy shivers at the thought, caught between horror and sympathy for the man she'd once hated and feared so much. That heady floral scent she'd always taken for the oil in Hook's hair, what if it had been something else? A drug to ease the pain of being trapped there, forced into the role of a villain. Wendy tries to picture the captain alone in his cabin, head heavy, breathing out smoke. The wavering light of a candle would make his shadow tremble as he tried to forget try to dream, try to sleep. Wendy passes her gaze over the cabin walls again. The room seemed smaller than when she entered, the air heavy, tainted and close, redolent with ghosts. She can't stay here. As Wendy climbs out of the captain's cabin, she moves with less caution. What if Hook never belonged here either, as much Peter's captive as Wendy and her brothers were his? Could he have been an actual sea captain once, a merchant, a soldier with a whole life beyond Neverland? 
If who could come from somewhere else, a place like her own England, with a real war and death, would this place have seemed like a paradise to him at first? Or would it have seemed a mockery of the real world with its violence and wars? Holy shit, man. (laughs) Yeah. That's so sad. I know, it's really sad. I do think that that's such an astute observation, though, is the fact that for all that Hook is the villain in the story, there's no real reason that he's the villain. No. And he doesn't ever hurt them, even though he could. Yeah. Because <laughs> obviously, like, as you can tell in this book, Peter steals people away to play out his own fantasies. Like, he picks people out like toys. Mm. So yeah, I loved this passage because, like, I just never gave it a second thought that Hook wouldn't have originally been part of Neverland somehow. Because that's kind of how it comes across. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking of the Disney version. But actually, the thought that he, like, has been sort of captured and forced to play out this role is Mm. very sad. It's also, like, terrifying when you think about the idea of, like, a grown man being enslaved by this, like, eternal child. Yeah, yeah. Because also, I don't, I really write this, I've not, like, got a thing about it, but he, like, he does drug everyone. So, like, he would have eventually forgotten that he wasn't really Captain Hook. Which is sad. Well! (laughs) So, yeah, I just wanted to end on this quote because it's maybe my favourite. So, I've not explained exactly why Peter is so dangerous, but this quote I'm about to read out, like, maybe hints at it if you pay close attention. But I think it's, like, vague enough out of context to not spoil anything. But yeah, I'm going to end on this one because it, it talks about a few things I've mentioned. So there's Peter as a villain and there's like the difference between Wendy and her brothers because of like their age, their gender as well, the trauma Wendy has suffered. And again, it just shows how creepy the idea of Peter Pan, like the story, is. Wendy opens her mouth, but she can't find the words to answer. She sees Peter looming over her, the angles of his face sharp, his eyes raging and heartbroken. You have to love me. A little boy, a monster, both and neither. Peter wanted desperately for Wendy to see all of him, like looking at two sides of a coin at the same time. John and Michael had only ever seen the boy, the adventures, but he'd shown Wendy all the darkness along with the light and he'd expected her to be infinitely vast enough to contain it all. A mother, strong enough to scare the monsters away, strong enough to love the monster even when it cannot love itself yeah (laughs) i do think it's really fucking weird that they all make her the mother in neverland yeah it's weird (laughs) yeah like just that like obviously it's weird but just an aside like how how bizarre yeah story well read this book and there's a lot of interesting discussion about that So yeah, that that's Wendy Darling. I didn't really speak about Jane's point of view today, but I did love that as well. So like, she's a very clever girl and she's into science. Right. So it's interesting having a child's point of view that isn't totally lost in the fantasy. Mm. Like she has quite a rational brain, so it's very good. And is she also meant to be like around the age that Wendy was, I take it, when she was adopted. Yeah, yeah. And Tiger Lily has a really interesting storyline too. Lots of <laughs> racial <laughs> dialogue there. You also have Michael experiencing his own trauma after the war, which I thought was a really interesting parallel between him and Wendy. Mm. 
And so yeah, I just really like to get my own copy because I'd like to read it again, like I said. I enjoyed how dark it was but I didn't feel like it was exploitative or like it was trying to be like edgy. Mm. <laughs> it's just like a really great look at the female experience in the early 1900s with this like magical Neverland element to it as well. Nice. So yeah, highly recommend it. I've not really heard anyone talking about it but it's a really good retelling and everyone seems to love a retelling at the moment. Yeah. So yeah. It's a good one. <laughs> Sweet. Well, thank you. That <laughs> sounds horrifying. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so what are you infatuated with this week? Well, weirdly, I am infatuated with The Heart is a Burial Ground by Tamara Colchester, which is a tale about gothic female trauma in the 1900s. Okay. So we're, we're on a theme today. <laughs> Yeah, this book is weird. <laughs> this book I'm going to try and explain and it's, it's difficult. So it came out in 2018 but I've heard it discussed a fair bit lately and I think that's maybe because of my interest in books like The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo by Taylor Jenkins Reid. It is a similar type of story in that it uncovers the life of this woman Caress Crosby who's like this artistic revolutionary and also the life of her daughter, Diana. And it spans from the 1920s through to the 1970s with them, and then into the 90s with Diana and her descendants. Okay. Um, so you have four generations of women in it. Um, you have Caress, Diana, Diana's daughters, Elena and Leone, and Elena's daughter, Bay. Okay. Um, which you don't need to remember all that. So, like, it's a big story. It's, like, an expansive story. And it has all the things that I love. Like, it has, like, glamour and, like, witty one-liners and it's got, like, dirty jokes and it's got loads of unconventional women, which is amazing. And I'll read out one of the very first chapters. It's just a page long to give you an idea of what I mean. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the first pages. We're in Hotel des Artistes, New York, 1929. They had to break the door down to get in. And there they were, lying fully dressed like brother and sister with only their feet naked, her stockings like two shed snakeskins in a heap on the floor. The tattooed suns on the soles of his long, gentle feet gave the police cause to raise their eyebrows, but it was his ochre-painted toenails that really got them talking. Every newspaper mentioned it as though it meant something, as if it was a clue or even an answer. For many it was evidence enough. Boston banker and his bride in suicide pact, it said in the headlines. Well, they were wrong on two counts. Harry was a poet, not a banker, and that girl was not his wife. Oh, I like it already. Yeah, that's like oh, such a good opening. <laughs> but yeah, it is told in these little vignettes like that. Some are a few pages long, that's a particularly short one. But they're not much longer than a few pages. And in this story you kind of piece together this mystery of, of this first vignette of Harry and how he died and who with. A lot of the plot of this book is around Harry's lost diaries which some of the characters are trying to find and some are trying to hide. Okay. So you have like these conflicting motivations around these diaries which is so fun. <laughs> it's like Cluedo. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> but as you can imagine along with like all the charm and the wit of that kind of writing it is also incredibly dark it is darker and more sinister than a lot of the books that i've seen it compared to 
Okay. So for anyone that is interested in reading it, there is definite themes of grooming, sexual abuse, neglect, and all sorts of other quite difficult things running throughout in the storyline of Diana's stepfather and Carissa's favourite husband, the late poet Harry Crosby. But what's great about this book, what it does well, is that it really lightly draws these kind of shadowy areas so that you're getting the idea of the trauma, but it kind of, it feels like trauma where it's like really long repressed or like confused memories rather Mm -hmm. than like clear events in the narrative. Mm -hmm. So it's like disconcerting to read in that way. So yeah, the story starts off in the prologue as being told by Caress's great-granddaughter Bay who in the present day of the narrative is only a child. But the narrative flips from Bay in the 90s to Elena in the 90s to Diana in the 70s to Caress in the 70s to child Diana in the 20s to adult Caress in the 20s. So okay. it's all over the fucking place. <laughs> and as well as traversing all these different generations and time periods, it also goes all over the world. So the parts in the 20s go from like New York, Boston, Paris, Switzerland, and then the parts in the 70s take place in a grand ruined Italian castle that Mm. Caress buys as like an artistic commune. And in the 90s, it's in Alderney in the Channel Islands in an abandoned fort. Okay. Okay. So this tells, like, this brings me to why I actually wanted to talk about this novel to you specifically, because I think you'd find it so interesting as an example of, like, female gothic and buildings. Yeah. There's so much in this book about houses, what houses mean at different stages in your life, like the confines of the grand house, the way that female sexuality and resistance to marriage fits into all that. There's, like, lots of women in grand dresses going through the hallways at night and, like, (laughs) running your hands over old books and trying (laughs) to find secrets. Oh, it's so good. But I thought I'd just read out some of the different settings and the way that the characters interact with them. Okay. So, easily the most gothic-y setting is the Italian castle. Mm -hmm. And that's where most of the narrative, if you like, takes place. So, it's called (laughs) Roccasini Balda. Mm-hmm. I find that word difficult to say, but I'll do my best. And I'll read the first paragraphs that introduce it. This is when Diana, so Caressa's daughter, arrives in 1970. And you'll get an idea of Diana's character as well. Damn, she knew she should have brought coat. Diana slammed the car door, cutting off the man talking in the front seat. She looked up at the walls of the castle that straddled the low mountain and felt the wind move through her dress, making her shiver like the tops of the cypress trees just visible above the battlements. The sound ran through the forest that covered the hills around them, a river of shh, and Diana turned her head and sniffed the air. Someone was burning dead leaves, the rich smell sinking quickly into her hair and the soft wool of her cardigan. A white flag flapped in the wind. She had a flag now. Christ. Well, the sooner she organised things, the sooner she could leave. She wrapped her arms round herself. Why the hell was it so cold? The other door to the car opened and the man got out, still talking. This needs to be handled with care. Your mother is very... Diana looked at the lawyer's face, still thick with sleep, and the greying hair sticking out over one ear. She couldn't stand people who showed signs of the night before. That's enough, Roberto. Besides, she leaned across the roof of the car. You didn't care about all that earlier, did you? His eyes travelled down to the low neck of her dress. She rolled her eyes, too easy, and began walking towards the vast wooden doors that stood wide open before them. 
So I love this passage because it just screams like modern gothic. You've got like the sexually empowered women standing in front of these big doors. Mm -hmm. Like, you know that shit's going to kick off. And then we have this incredible exchange in the first conversation between Diana and her mother, Caress, after she arrives, where they talk about children. It's not easy, is it, darling, getting it right? Caress said thoughtfully. Then her voice changed, surging in a new direction. Children are strange things. I wonder why it is that we have to have them. Women, I mean. Some kind of punishment, I suppose. They certainly take it out of you. Diana finished her glass and then looked around the room, stopping when she noticed a portrait hung between the two windows. You've kept it, she said, surprised. Yes. Caress turned to see what she was looking at. I've always liked it. I think he got you very well. I thought you'd got rid of it. She smiled and turned to face a mirror, arranging her hands in the same position and tilting her head, until she caught her mother's amused glance in the bed behind her. Why would I do that? Caress said mildly. Diana looked at her in the reflected glass and then shook her head, turning away. I don't like this place, she said decisively. It's too big. These thick stone walls keep nothing out, or in. Your houses are always too big. Her mother looked at her over the top of her glasses. Places are just people, Diana. Places are just you. Why are you so touchy anyhow? Who's your lover? I saw your flag flapping about outside. Diana ignored the question. How is the great political party? It's not political. It's anti-political. Flags are always political. This is a place of true democracy, her mother declared. A republic of the arts. And where you elected as divine ruler. (laughs) 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 Which I think is really funny. But also I love that you have like the portrait, you have like the doubling of the mother and the daughter in the Mm -hmm. mirror. It's just so many, like there's so many tropes. Yeah. But they're all done so well. They're like chatting about childbearing. Yeah, they're done in quite a like more kind of modern way, I guess. Yeah, and like a very self-aware way. Yeah. Almost like it is like they're too much it's like got the portrait in the mirror and the the mirroring of the portrait and mm-hmm. then she goes your houses are always too big yeah yeah like i don't like this play <laughs> like she's going like this is too much mm-hmm. and the running background joke of this castle which i really love is that the roof has fallen apart and the whole time that diana's there visiting caress they're bickering about how much money caress is sinking into this roof so on one of our first nights, Diana goes up to the roof and watches the sunset, and this is what we get. One foot in front of the other, Diana's ribbon-crossed ankles flickered over the old stone ramparts as the sun lowered itself beyond the lines of the hills of the distance. Below her, a sheer drop, the tops of the trees. Diana faltered for a moment, tipped a fraction and split. Watched her body fall, only half interested by the possibility of her dying. She completed the circuit of the roof, the last heavy rays causing her to half-close her eyes, the angled roofs of the town below tucked in shadow now, like a shy child holding close to its mother's skirt. Carefully ignoring the men at work on the sea of tiles that rose and fell around her, she turned away and looked out across the valley gilded by evening light. Oh, it made her mad she would not look at it. A million dollars. A million dollars! An investment, a legacy, her mother called it, the cloudless sky reflected in her glasses. Diana had shaken her head. We don't choose our own legacy, mother. It's decided by the people doing the remembering. 
She'd looked a little perturbed by that and made a note in her diary. It shamed Diana somehow, this late altruism. It was also meagre, with the meetings and flag pins and the eager teenagers doing dance routines. Why did she bother with all this now? Frittering what little remained on this absurd flea circus. It had been so huge and this was so pathetic somehow. Just look at it. She stared with folded arms at the tiles spreading between the battlements, the wind blowing her skirt against her legs. This roof was nothing more than a lid on a steaming pan, a load of hot air. She smiled condescendingly, pleased with her metaphor. Perhaps that was it. Denial. Nothing more than the simple fear of death. Well, we all have to face up to that, she thought, with the brisk clarity of one who wasn't. But why did her mother bother with all these ideas? Why couldn't she just be brave like he had? He hadn't cared about roofs and political reconciliation. He'd just done it. He'd smashed out of here instead of this endless birthing of all that was new. New ideas, new life, new friends. She gripped the wall, the weight of loss inside her as heavy as a stone. Coming back was always a mistake. As she stood there, she slowly became aware of the press of someone's gaze and, turning her head, saw that a few of the workmen, large men, sweating and covered in dark hair, were indeed staring. Without altering her expression, she arched her back slightly, a better line, and shook her hair back as she gazed open-eyed into the last of the sunlight. Biting her bottom lip, she bent further over the edge of the battlements to look down at the street winding below. Sen fiku maturo, one of the men murmured, causing the others to laugh. I'm not going to even attempt the Italian of that next line. Another <laughs> said, Moriere per una cosa. She watched a boy kicking something along the road that ran beneath the south wall and then, hearing a shout, moved her head slowly, her hand trailing the stone, feeling the men's breath rising and falling in her own chest to where the winding walkway of the entrance unfolded beneath her. Through the archway she saw the wide circle of her mother's jade parasol making its swaying descent, the fringed silk cutting side to side as she was carried in her sedan chair, a man in front, a man behind, down the steep winding entrance of the castle towards where the large door stood open. Strange thing to do with a fortress caress, she said to her mother. This place was built to keep people out. And her mother had smiled that infuriating smile. I like a bit of subversion. She leaned further over to watch her mother going forward with arms extended to greet the driver of yet another car, suitcases tied to its roof. Who are all these people? Always people, guests, guests, guess who's in your bed tonight, but then look at this place. She shook her head and turned back, the sole of her shoe rasping the grip. Living in a castle was asking for an invasion. They would talk today, she decided, after her mother had finished filming. Always yes caress. Diana rolled her eyes at the sky so that blue met blue. So much better, don't you think, darling? So much bigger than the sad finality of no. A yes always fissures into a thousand possibilities. But Diana knew what that really meant. Always saying yes was to forever promise nothing. Mm. That's such a good passage. (laughs) I just, I think what I liked most about this was the way that the castle and the roof is used to like reveal the relationship bit by bit. Mm -hmm. Because you can bet that this roof, like this point of contention, and symbol of like closing or securing the castle is just the slow burn in 
well-crafted metaphor all the way through the narrative as Caress becomes weaker and Diana has to take over her legacy. It's just very well done. Mm-hmm. I've got a couple of other good housey passages to share which show like the motivations of the characters. Um, uh-huh. I don't have as much analysis on them, but I'll just share them anyway because they're fun. Go for it. So this one is when Caress is remembering first meeting Harry way back in the 20s. And this is back in Boston, where she's kind of known as, like, the tearaway relative now. Boston in the 20s must be a fun time period to write. (laughs) Yeah. Caress waited with one finger in the air until she heard the crack of thunder and then the wash of rain, tiny hands hitting everything. She loved it when it rained like this. It meant not feeling guilty at lying in bed like an old pillow, some kind of matron. And it was a familiar sound, a grey sound wrapped in warmth. Yes, rain was the Boston sky, home, her beginning, a heaped grey of boredom broken only by tears. That rain had fallen without stopping until everything was sodden and the streets were drenched almost black. Until he came. Caress felt her heart move, and she shook her head as though refusing someone entry. Oh, it had been silent as she'd waited for him in that house full of clocks and whispered hallway conversations and cars driving past and never once stopping. There was Diana, hidden away with the nanny in the barricaded nursery, and the stiff rustle of her mother-in-law drawing lines of duty around the house. I know it's not easy having your husband away, Mary dear, but you are a mother now, and we must look on the bright side. And the cosy little upward glance to the floor above. God, she'd sat for hours like an abandoned fort doing nothing, seeing no one. What a life. Waiting for visiting hours and the rounds of flowered hats and polite gossip stirred into Darjeeling with small silver spoons, the black tea turning milky with false kindness, the acid murmurs of these women as gloved hands pulled the still bloody scalps of those who had strayed from exquisite beaded bags to be compared, weighed and then pinned to the notice board of the Chilton Country Club. Then he'd come. Salvation in the wilderness. I liked that one of the first lines about the rain being like tiny little hands. Yeah. <laughs> Is it not just so like creepy? Yeah. It's so, oh, it's like lots of like, like dolls or something. Yeah. It's really scary. I don't like it. But yeah, I also love that you get that Caress was called Mary because obviously mm. she called herself Caress. Mm. And it's like, you know, the virgin and the whore. Yeah, blah, yeah. Blah, blah. And also that line, like an abandoned fort, is very telling. Mm. Like, she sat like an abandoned fort. Because then when we fast forward to the end of her life in the 1990s, we've got... Well, no, sorry, Caress is already dead. It's the end of Diana's life in the 1990s. We've got her growing old in her own abandoned fort in Alderney, which is creepy. Yeah. So it's an old war stronghold. And I can't, I couldn't find the bit in the book which is annoying but one of the characters makes a comment that the lobsters on the beach in Alderney are huge because that's where the bodies washed up oh. which is like <laughs> oh so gross um so this is a passage where Diana's daughter Elena and her husband James are visiting Diana at the fort and it just shows like the way that the different generations relate to the places okay Alderney 1993 Slow down, James called, and both he and Elena watched the small figures of their children dashing towards the abandoned road that stretched from the beach to the fort that stood on a small island a hundred metres from the shore. Shall we go across? James asked. Elena nodded distractedly. 
Come back here, he shouted, and the children changed direction and looked back towards them. Her conversation with her mother was turning itself over in her mind. What do they mean by fight or flight? Diana had asked, looking at her as Elena retrieved the papers scattered around her mother's bed. Where did you hear that? On the radio this morning. They were talking about soldiers, but I couldn't make the connection. It's a mechanism of trauma. Elena warily opened the subject. They were probably mentioning it in relation to PTSD. Which is, her mother listened keenly, post-traumatic stress disorder. Fight or flight. A rather limited menu of responses. There are others. You neither fight nor fly. It was your sister who was the fighter. She smiled approvingly. A tough little thing. Elena tensed her mouth. Whereas you, Elena, her mother dragged her eyes over her. You stick around, my dependable Elena. She smiled into the mouth of her glass and drank. It's called freezing, Elena said quietly. It's another response. Hmm, Diana said. Well, you have always been distinctly foie. And the last is fawn. I believe that's what your friends are for. Diana ignored her. Besides, I do leave. Elena said indignantly, already hating herself for being drawn in. I haven't been here for over two years. You may leave, her mother said, but you always come back. I'm always asked to, Elena said, exasperated. People can ask what they like. Some of the things I've been asked to do, my God, you'd lose your mind. You don't have to do them, Elena. You only have to do what you want. Your sister was always clear on that front. Always stood her ground. Solid, that's what she is. The fact that she spends most of her time kneeling these days, well, she whisked her hands about. Didn't she always? Elena said viciously, and Diana laughed, delighted. Elena pressed her hands into her eyes. I don't mean that. Leone's amazing. Her mother looked at her for a moment. Hiding in a convent? What's amazing is that they let her in. There's no hiding in a convent, Diana, Elena said. She's chosen an arduous path. Jealous? her mother said with a needling smile. Elena shook her head. Her mother had the ability to locate the correct emotion in much the same way that she would immediately find the children on the rare occasions she was induced to join a game of hide-and-seek without moving from the sofa or setting aside her magazine. Yes, I'm a little jealous. A life of silence is tempting. You do a bloody good job at trying. Now as Elena walked under the short causeway that led to the gates of the abandoned fort, she saw the way the tide had pulled the sea back from the shore, revealing the rough rock formations usually concealed by the smooth sheet of water. The children peered left and right as they picked their way over them, occasionally kneeling to put out a tentative hand into the pools of warm water that lay in the lee of the rocks, daring themselves to touch what was inside them. As Elena and James walked through the broken gates, the boys appeared at their sides. Can we go in there? Jake asked, pointing to a dark doorway surrounded by a tangle of nettles. Yes, but you must be careful, Elena warned as she felt the broken glass crunch under her battered plimsoll. Perhaps you should go with them, James. And James let go of her arm and went towards the boys. In the silence, they could hear from somewhere a thundering sound. Why is the water in this hole black? One of the boys shouted. It's not. It's clear as day, James replied, disappearing behind them into the dark. A trick of the light. Through the doorway, Elena saw the beam of a torch moving over the concrete wall, marked as though it had been filled with dirty water that had slowly drained away over the years. 
she could hear James speaking to the boys. The Germans needed vast stocks of essentials in order to withstand a sustained assault. The beach we were on was in a vulnerable position and they laid a number of... Bottles! One of the boys exclaimed. There was a smash. Wait! Elena heard James call. You mustn't smash a wine bottle until you're absolutely sure it's undrinkable. There was silence. Alright, you can break a few. There were whoops as the smashing began. Elena followed through the doorway and felt herself swallowed up by the cool, musty darkness. The sound of the sea beyond the fort's walls echoed in the abandoned space, and somewhere there was the scurrying of tiny feet over broken glass. Elena felt a small hand steal into her own, and she looked down to see Bay, backlit by the light from the doorway, staring into the dark at something only she could see. Have you had enough, Bay? she said. Shall we go back? Yes, Bay said quietly, tightening her grip. And turning round, they walked towards the square of light, leaving the noise of the smashing and the whooping behind them. That, and that's on gender! <laughs> <laughs> that bit was like, the, oh, like, why is the water black? You know, mm. he talks about like, the trick of light, that's very unsettling. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't, I don't understand fully what that metaphor might, means. I'd need to read the book again, but I'm like, oh, I don't like that. But yeah, there is absolutely loads of stuff in here that you could do readings of. There's like the relationship with childbearing and like the relationship with religion in this book is really interesting. Diana marries a very old man and then a man like her stepfather, who we can gather is a bit of an aunt, and has a child by each one. And so Leone, the child of the old guy, goes into a convent, as we've heard, and Elena, the other daughter, goes on to become a mother of many children and define herself as that. So in their own ways, they take, like, their abusive introductions to sex and create, like, an impairment out of it. So there's a doubling there. There's a doubling between Caress and Diana to the point where Diana obviously wastes away in a fort, much like she watches Caress waste away in a castle. There is a passion for art which drives them all, but they all have different motivations around it. And what I love is that there are real figures that show up, like Dali and Ezra Pound and James Joyce are all in this novel, mm. which means that it fits into that weird tradition of like blending fact and fiction, yeah. which makes it more unsettling. Mm. Basically, if you're into modern gothic and you don't mind being actually quite disturbed, this is a good one. <laughs> you say that as if that isn't the point of gothic. <laughs> well, no, you know what I mean though? Like, There's like older gothic hints at stuff in a way that's like you don't have to confront it as fully because it wouldn't have been as like mm-hmm. it wouldn't be as graphic is mm-hmm. what i'm trying to say this is quite graphic gothic mm-hmm. but i haven't read out a lot of the so would it bits. sorry just gothic phd here yeah. so would you say that it's maybe more horror then than gothic because gothic normally is a it's, yeah, it's more terror, it's um it? like it's the suspense of things that will happen is gothic. I think that it is mostly that because it's never it's not until the very end of the book that things are overtly yeah. revealed. Yeah, yeah, so no, that makes sense. So most of it is quite, but I just say like, I've read some of the fun and like funny passages out mm-hmm. but there's like bits of this book where I wish that it would end because I was like, I hate yeah, this. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? No, that, ma- so. that makes sense. I was just curious. <laughs> <laughs> um, like a lot of it is really yeah <laughs> but i'm not a gothic or a horror reader so maybe i'm just weak <laughs> yeah no i, I want to read that I, yeah. I don't know how i've never heard of that before i don't know either because it was like like i say it was 2018 so yeah. i don't know how either of us haven't heard of it but 
I suppose it looks, when you look at it, it doesn't look like a gothic. It looks quite contemporary. Yeah, yeah. and it looks quite, like, romancy, I guess. Yeah. Like, it looks like it could be just a romance, and it's 100% not. Mm-hmm. So. Interesting. Now, for writing chat this week, I had a thing to share with you. Yeah. So I had this poem that I saw mm-hmm. the other day and I thought that it was an interesting subject so it's very short and I thought I'd read it out and then we could talk about it. Okay. So it's called The Friendship of Young Poets and it goes like this. There must have been more than just one of us but we never met. Each kept in his world of loss the promise of literary days, the friendship of poets. Mysterious, that sharing of books and talking in whispers in crowded bars, suspicious enough to be taken for love. We never met. My youth was as private as the bank at midnight, and in its safety, no talking behind backs, no one alike enough to be pretentious with and quote lines at. There is a boat on the river now, and two young men, one rowing, one reading aloud. Their shirt sleeves fill with the wind and from the oars drop scales of perfect river like melting glass. Well, that last bit makes me think of, like, Dead Poet Society. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's, um... It made me think of Bridget Jones. But... <laughs> no, it does also make me think of that. Yeah. But I, like, I just saw that in passing. I was just scrolling, you mm-hmm. know, as one does. And I was, like, stopped in my tracks because I was <laughs> like, oh my god, I've never seen someone articulate that particular longing in a poem mm, mm-hmm. because a lot of the time like literature isn't that self-conscious about bookish people yeah but yeah, yeah I just think I 100% relate to that poem like I always felt like there was no one to quote pretentious lines at mm. and I thought it was interesting because it got me thinking about how now dark academia and that kind of aesthetic is like a trend among the youths so I wonder if because it's fashionable it's more accessible to be like this or if like a lot of like online aesthetics it doesn't translate into real life what's your take do you have thoughts about this Mm. I think sort of yes to both like I I think it is more of a thing now like dark academia or light academia as well Mm. that it's like more acceptable to be a bit pretentious and like it's got an aesthetic to it as well so Mm. like it can be in your clothes and all that as well but also does it reach outside of our literary world i don't know i don't know either but does it actually translate into our literary world beyond clothes and stuff do you think I think dark academia, it is very an aesthetic thing, but I think it is also that pursuit of knowledge, mm. which I suppose I don't agree, like, I'm not that obsessed with stuff. I'm more probably the, the light mm. academia, where it's like, you just like the pursuit of knowledge, but you don't, you know, like, get murderous over it, which <laughs> <laughs> is pretty dark academia. So, like, I, I think on the internet, it's more of an aesthetic thing, mm-hmm. like looks, like fashion, your Instagram feed, your house, your house, your decor. yeah. But 
I do think it is a thing now where people are more like cool with just being like yeah I'm passionate about stuff which I think is quite dark academia yeah because I feel like when we were younger it was like it was cool to be cool where now it's like cool to be not cool yeah it's cool now to have a niche Mm -hmm. because like I've always liked books but I don't I don't I don't talk to loads of people about them just because not everyone was interested but also I think I think confidence culture has a lot to do with it as well, right? Because being pretentious or being, like, really confident in your interests was, like, the opposite of what we were encouraged to do. It was, like... Yeah. You shouldn't show off. Whereas now it's, like, encouraged to shine a bit more, I guess. Yeah. No, I I agree with that. Some people still get it wrong and are just pretentious in the wrong way. Yeah. yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. It's probably more of a confidence of just being able to, like, be yourself and, like, talk about something that you're interested in, something that you're knowledgeable in. Like, just, this is stuff that I like. Mm. I think that is more of a thing now, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think it is. But then I'm like, maybe that's just a perception of getting older and getting more comfortable in your own stuff. Because yeah. my other point was going to say... I feel like once you stop wanting that, once you stop yearning for this like friendship of young poets, it does actually happen. Like you look around one day and you realize that like we do a podcast about books together. Yeah, it's almost like a like almost once you like allow yourself to be the person that you're searching for. Yeah. <laughs> like then you find then those then people. You find the people. Yeah. It's almost like, no, I just said it. Yeah, that, that's what that's I was trying 100%. to say. <laughs> I I think yeah when when you stop feeling like you're pretending to be who you actually are. Yeah. Because a lot of the time I think like imposter syndrome has a lot to do with it, right? But mm-hmm. like when you accept that like no this is your personality, then you do naturally create those communities. Yeah. Around you because it feels authentic and people are like oh I want to be friends with you because of that. Yeah. Yeah. And then you do end up having, like... So I guess I just wanted to say, like, if there, if there's anyone that really relates to that poem, which I really would have if I'd seen it when I was younger. Yeah. Like, it, it happens. You get it. You get to be the people in the bowl. Yeah. <laughs> just share that poem. Yeah. <laughs> and you'll find that. And then you'll, share, you'll find the people. But also, like, can we just appreciate that image of, like, the two boys in the bowl? Yeah. It's so sweet. Oh. <laughs> Do you have a quick fire favourite this week? I do. I have an EP today Ooh. from 1990 Nowhere, which is a good name for a band. That is good. It's called A Fever Called Living, and they're a very nostalgia-heavy band. So as their name suggests, they're 90s kids, mm. um, and they really lean into that and have this very like California vibe to their music as well. But what I love about this EP specifically is that the four song titles are Bukowski, Edgar Allan Poe, Picasso and Kubrick. Like academia. (laughs) (laughs) I've not seen this anywhere, like this what I'm about to say. Mm. But in my mind, that's an ironic choice. Uh, I think there's a stereotype for the kind of guy who enjoys those four male figures. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> like, and even in Bukowski, the, the first song on the EP, one of the first lines is, I think I'm an intellectual, I mean I've read Bukowski once or twice. <laughs> um, which 
it's tongue in cheek, <laughs> or at least in my mind, I hope it is. Oh, please let it be. <laughs> no, I think it is. But yeah, so the songs are named after these figures, but they're not like exactly about them. There's just kind of like little references to them in the lyrics. So I thought I'd just read some of them out. Yeah, go for it. Um, so in Bukowski, there's obviously the lyric I just read out. In Edgar Allan Poe, the chorus goes, he quit listening, said fuck the raven, cause it said he was misbehaving. Mm. We found Edgar Allen walking on a Wednesday, wandering Baltimore. And there's also a line later that says, don't quote the raven, just hear me out. <laughs> which I like. <laughs> That's good. In Picasso, which is a song about like glossing over issues in relationships, it goes, maybe I could fix us, a fresh coat of paint's just fine. <laughs> and then in Kubrick, the Kubrick reference comes from within a blockbuster, which is just nostalgia uh, and the line is i was browsing kubrick and you were browsing horror that shit scares me i ain't gonna lie and then there's also a line in the chorus that goes she said oh we'll take the shining then step on a bullet train and never pay the fines oh that's a good bar <laughs> so yeah it's just a really great wee ep um like i said lots of 90s nostalgia and references and like the music's very like California pop punk mm. um, which is just really great so I recommend it. <laughs> nice, I think I might have heard you listening to it Yeah, you probably have. Yeah, I yeah. think I'll do it <laughs> Nice. What is your quickfire favourite? My quickfire favourite also ties into this like theme we're so, we're so in sync today Wow. Because clearly I've been on a kick for academia stuff as well mm. My quickfire favourite is the Netflix miniseries The Chair So it stars Sandra Oh, who people will know from Grey's Anatomy and Killing Eve. And in the series, she is the first female chair of the English department at an American university. And it follows her through the first major scandal as chair, which is that one of the professors, who she happens to be in love with, and that's not a spoiler because it's in the first episode, Mm. makes a Nazi salute to illustrate a point in a lecture. But someone makes a gif of it Mm. and then just all hell breaks loose. So the episodes are only 30 minutes long and there's only six, but they managed to pack so much into it. You've got like Sandra O's characters balancing her own politics because the uni's putting pressure on her to get rid of her older staff. She's fighting for tenure for a black professor. She's trying to navigate the needs of the students and keep her like romantic feelings for a colleague out of it. She also has an adopted daughter, Juju, who is hilarious. (laughs) And she... Sandra Oh's character is trying to reconcile her Korean heritage with Juju's Mexican heritage, which is amazing. The cast is really good, and particularly Holland Taylor plays the Chaucer professor, (laughs) which is amazing. She's so good. And there's lots of, like, geeky celebration of English as a subject and, like, discussion around problematic of the canon and stuff like that yeah so you can like easy binge it in a weekend i think i watched it in like two days yeah and it's really fun i think Mm. our listeners would like it yeah that sounds good do you have do i have is it me yes do you have a root It's been a long time. <laughs> um, yes, I do. I always get confused because it's the only bit where I go first. I know. I... It probably doesn't even make sense that you go first anymore. It used to make sense when you used rant. to rant. I know. Uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. Anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> the OGs know. Um, so I got this route from the chair, actually. 
And I thought it was interesting because we think a lot of our common idioms and figures of speech as coming from Shakespeare. But in the show, Holland Taylor's character points out that a lot of them came even earlier from Chaucer, Mm. who was around the 14th century. So some common phrases that came from Chaucer are nothing ventured, nothing gained, patience is a virtue, time and tide wait for no man. And as I was like, then I just got on a binge of Chaucer quotes because I was like, yeah, why not? Because I skipped that module at uni. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to read up on this guy. Mm. And on my journey through his quotes, I found one which I just think is an absolute banger for us. Okay. Which is, how potent is the fancy? People are so impressionable, they can die of imagination. Oh, God. (laughs) I love that. I love it too. Isn't that so good? That is so good. I want that on my wall. I want like <laughs> die of imagination. Just yeah, that's so, good. That's my route. Is that you know Chaucer was there too. Nice. <laughs> What's your insight first? My insight is that I thought I would read out another Flax Golden Tale from Erin mm. Morgan Sarah's website today, and this time I thought I'd go for like a funny one. Okay. Though it's still very whimsical, and it's called The Cat and the Fiddle. I was tasked with finding the cat who could play the fiddle because the band needed a proper fiddle player and the sheep were lousy at anything but percussion, including running their own errands. I asked around at pubs and shops and fairy markets and several questionable sources pointed me in the same direction but when I got there I only found the cow. I asked if she had really jumped over the moon and she said yes but technically it was a moon and not the moon. She told me that tale tellers are prone to hyperbole, especially when rhyming. I asked after the cat, hoping that part wasn't also a rhyme necessitated exaggeration. I explained how I was searching for a fiddle player and she told me the cat did indeed play the fiddle once but she gave it up, something about no longer finding the instrument challenging. The last account I'd heard was that the cat was studying the harpsichord, or at least that's what the little dog said. I told her that was a shame as I'd been sent in search of a fiddle player and not a harpsichordist and thanked her for saving me the trouble of looking further. She told me the cat always declined invitations to join bands anyway because the fiddle thing had given her a bit of a reputation and she preferred to be free to follow her muse. Then the cow added in a whisper that the dish really did run away with the spoon but the fork was the only one who didn't see that coming and he's still in therapy. I'm so satisfied by that because I was gonna. I was literally on the edge of my seat, being like, "What about the dish and the spoon? <laughs> Is it going to address the dish and the spoon?" Yeah. So I just realised I didn't explain. Those are ten sentence short stories that Aaron Morganson wrote. But yeah, I just really enjoyed that one when I saw it. I love that. <laughs> I'm wondering, like. For anyone that doesn't know that, is all references to a nursery rhyme, but I'm sure everyone knows I'm that. I'm sure everyone knows that. Yeah. Oh, I really enjoyed that. <laughs> Our question this week, submitted from Dee, is which Greek god would you most like to have dinner with? So I decided on Hermes. Interesting. I have a couple of reasons. So one is that he's the only Olympian who can pass that boundary between the living and the dead. Um, he carries the souls of the dead to Hades, and I would just like to discuss that. <laughs> um, like, <laughs> like, what is the underworld like? What's Hades like? 
is Sarah Burris a good boy? <laughs> the important questions. Of course he's a good boy. Yeah. Also, according to Cersei by Madeline Miller, Hermes is just like the biggest gossip. Mm. Um, and because he's like the messenger of, of the gods, he's part of so many myths. So I feel like because of that, he'd have loads of great chat and stories about all the gods. And I, I would just like to talk about that. That's very valid. <laughs> That's this is so tangential. But see, today when I was walking up the street, I saw this man and he had three dogs. But one was like, I don't know if they were like bulldogs or like boxers or like something in between. But mm. they were like ones with the wrinkly faces. And right, it was like yeah. like a square dog looked mm-hmm. like looked like it could fight you, but it was really cute. But so there was like a big one, and then there was two puppy ones oh. either side of it. But when they were all walking towards me, it looked like a really cute fluffy Cerberus. Oh, <laughs> and I cute. thought this, and I was like, "That's so cute." And then the big one came up and talked to me, so that was Aww. an honor in my day. Nice. And I feel blessed by the gods. <laughs> so who did you decide on? I didn't put as much thought into it as you did. Uh, I just went with Dionysus because God of Wine and Ecstasy. <laughs> yeah, I, d- I did think about that, but I don't drink as much, so... God of Wine and Ecstasy, dinner date, done. That was my entire thought process. <laughs> On the note of gods, I'm going to waste a route here, but why not? Go for it. I learned recently, one of my friends was telling me, that the word enthusiasm means filled with the spirit of the gods I can't remember the exact etymology but I enjoy that as like a as an etymology of that word because that's what it feels like Mm. it's like you've you've got otherworldly vigour yeah (laughs) when you're enthusiastic you're like yeah, that's I was true. like, yeah, I really like that. So there you are. There's a there's a bonus route for this episode. Nice. That is us this week. If you have any comments or questions, then our email is infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com. We also have social media, which is linked in the show notes, along with everything we've talked about today, including the Infatuated Mix, which has all the music we mention. Oh, and that's going to be good this time. It will be. that EP. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, please rate and review us on your podcast apps, because that helps get the podcast out there. Please do. And... You know, why not tell us what Greek god you would most like to have dinner with? And feel free to put as much or as little thought into that (laughs) as you like. That says bye. bye!